Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today's guest is Perry Zhang, an ex-Amazon, Twitter, and Lyft engineer and founder of Cashflow Portal. In this episode, he will share with us his journey of building software for real estate syndicators, leveraging everything that he's learned working at these unicorns before. Perry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit of uh, your background? How how did you get to these very big and obviously very successful companies? And, and how did you start uh, your own business? So I was trained foremost as a software engineer, graduated in 2010, worked at a few companies, uh, starting with the biggest and then kind of worked my way down to, you know, first Amazon, then Twitter, then Lyft, they get smaller and smaller. And now I am the founder and CEO of Cashflow Portal, which is a year and a half old startup focused on real estate syndication software. You have news to share. Essentially, since we last spoke, uh, you raised money. Is that correct? Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. We raised about 3.5 and it's pretty incredible. We raised it in like less than a week. Not sure what you what was on the pitch deck. It must have been something very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, what is Cashflow Portal? So Cashflow Portal is a real estate syndication software that helps real estate sponsors raise equity, streamline their operations and just reach more investors. Now, uh, going back to the last question, the reason we were able to raise quite a bit of money in a short amount of time is that I had a experience as a real estate sponsor myself. I have been a real estate investor almost as a side gig while I was working as a software engineer and engineer manager in these tech companies. And so, for example, um, our first deal, we raised $4.3 million for a real estate project, a, 172 unit in Dallas, Texas. And that one is 4.3 million from 70 investors. So that means 70 DocuSigns that I need to send out, 70 signatures I need to review. I countersign it, send them back. I check the bank account every day to make sure the wire has been received. And then send out another email acknowledging the wire receipt. It is quite cumbersome and tedious. And so that's why I built the software to streamline that process. But because I was a half been a successful sponsor, people know I have a good track record in, uh, in just fiduciary duty. Awesome. So 73 investors, is that about normal? Is that about average what these deals go? Or is there significantly more or, or less? What's the distribution here? Good question. That is pretty normal. In order to do syndication, it's good idea that you get more than 60 units. And now usually syndications are between 100 to 150 or plus units. And that's usually about a $5 million raise. And so if each person invests 50,000, that's 100 investors. So if, if, if you know, plus or minus 20. So yeah, I, I can imagine how that's uh, managing a lot of people, a lot of deal flow to get this stuff done. So you said it, you, you, you were you were essentially using a zoo of tools and manual work and being a software engineer, it probably didn't take long for you to figure out, I could build a tool here. So essentially, that's what you did first for yourself, right? Yeah, that's right. And one interesting thing I noticed was 
all the softwares back then were extraordinarily expensive because it's business to business. And second, they usually came from established real estate sponsors that want to get into the real estate business, wanting to get into the SaaS business. My background is almost the opposite. I came from a software world. I know how software gets built. And I know that in Silicon Valley and, you know, this uh, West Coast, we just build software better and differently. And then I became, got into real estate investing. So I, I came from it from a different angle. I'm foremost a engineer by training. So after you've built this more or less for yourself to just manage your deal flow, to improve it, to get rid of all the hassle, how did you realize, well, this could be a business? So a couple of things. I was a engineer manager. I live at the time. So I was basically working three jobs. I was moonlighting at night. I actually did not code. I decided that I would not write a single line of code. So I built a team of software engineers to build the initial prototype. Uh, and I used it for my own deal. And so and that went very successful. But that's a year to a year and a half in the making. Right. So that a year to a year and a half is the most painful part where we have almost zero customers and we just kept building. We focus on product and design and, and engineering. And we build it in a pretty scalable engineering way. Now, why so in a way I was building the software with the focus that this is going to be adopted by other customers. So to take a step back, being a software developer, you were a manager uh, then, but generally you're you're an engineer. Why did you decide, okay, I'm not going to build that myself. Uh, I'm just going to straight away hire a team. It may be one of those intuitive philosophy I had over the years was I want to see what is the equilibrium and I want to do what is at that equilibrium. Uh, by taking a shortcut and then transition into the equilibrium usually means more work. And so I know if I want to build a company, eventually I'm not going to code. Eventually I need to build a team and even hire more and more people. So by coding, I'm actually, it might be faster in the short term, but in the long term, there will be a painful transition. It's the same idea perhaps that if I, I can start off by buying single families and whatnot, but if I know one day I need to scale, it's better to start building the team so that I can buy apartment complexes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as, as they say, you know, the founder's core skill can be the company's bottleneck because that's something that you clinge to, right? You're like, hey, I'm good at this. I don't know. I'm good at sales. I'm good at coding. I can do this. I, I'm going to build a team in, I don't know, marketing because that's not what I'm good at. But coding, I'm just going to going to clinch that for the rest of my life. I'm going to micromanage it because I believe I know better. I think that's, that's, that is a big problem for the founder. And so you just said, no, I'm, I'm not going to go down that f- path. I'm just going to straight away build a team. How did you build a team uh, in the early days? Did you fund that yourself? Uh, where did you find people? I fund the, the, the operation myself. I also found everyone myself. A lot of it is through grind and hustle. The first engineer was from Upwork. I got very lucky where uh, they were really good. And so I thought it was really easy to hire engineers. It turned out the next 20 engineers I interviewed all really bad. So I just got really lucky on that first engineer. The other thing that is more of a tailwind, which I am forever grateful, is 
with every crisis, there is opportunity. So during the pandemic, I was able to work from home. So my friends were not hanging out. So I don't have this kind of like fear of missing out, of not being able to go to dinner with them. Uh, that's number one. Second, because I can work from home, I can switch back and forth between you know my W-2 job and my startup. Number three, because of the pandemic, everyone was looking for a job. So you know now everyone has multiple offers. So I'm definitely very appreciative of the good things that went on during that time. That they were very favorable to starting a company back then. When did you start exactly? Was it like during or short before of it? When did you start? Literally when the pandemic was starting. So April of 2022. Oh, wow. Uh, 2020. Yeah. A year and a half ago. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, oh, uh, seeing how this has changed and what we have right now, it was obvious to, you know, hire people back then, to scale back then, to invest back then because it was cheap, right? But back then, of course, it was a risk. Of course, it was a gamble. So, um, well, congratulations on, on taking that. So you also said that not only did you hire a team right away, right, but you also started building at scale right away. What others, especially in the bootstrap world, especially in this kind of philosophy, people would call that maybe premature scaling. What were your thoughts behind that? I have a few points. The first point is, in my mind, it was not premature scaling in a way. I was able to do the trade-off between what is the risk of not doing that and versus what's the risk of spending extra week or two weeks to make it well or make it fundamentally. And then maybe there is different levels to engineering. So to me, that's just the basic engineering. And so I was like, yeah, like spend a week or two and the business is not gonna uh, be over because we spent two extra weeks. But if we do that, then we don't have to do a database migration, no matter what will become to the database. And so that's well worth it, in my opinion, right? That being said, we were, okay, let's talk about the product side. Product side, we, I was a customer, but I was doing a lot of user interviews and give them beta accounts where they can try it out. And we do have one beta interview, maybe once a week or twice a week. And that has been very helpful in making our product iteratively better. And that's instrumental. And I read on an article that you only probably need five beta users to test a particular feature to have a pretty statistical, you know, early sample because any incremental feedback is probably not going to add that much more value uh, if, you are, if you cannot do A-B testing, for example. Okay. Now, from an engineering side, I know very well what we are doing. Even though I don't code, I review every tech spec. I know the. I should don't download the GitHub. I read the code sometimes, and I know the architecture back and forth. So there will be bugs in which I already foresee things could happen. So I uh, translate those worries into almost direction changes and refactorings for the engineers to execute. Uh, so. Yeah, I was born an engineer in a way, so I could think uh, of it like that. The good news, though, is you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Is once we start getting customers and they come in just in a hockey stick fashion, we do not need to do any database migrations. Our system was stable. Like if we didn't do what we did, 
we will have a very hard time scaling with, uh, along with our customers. Now, was that frowned upon by the startup world? Uh, absolutely. There were good mentors at the time that one told me that I should quit so I can go full time. Two, they told me that I should do 10 customer interviews a day to get more feedback. And three is that you've been working on it for a year and $200,000, $300,000 spent and you have almost zero customers. What are you doing? I don't know how to answer those questions right now. <laughs> well, for you, it's definitely paid off, which is amazing. It makes me wonder because a lot of the founders that we talk to, we work with, they, they have not experienced working at Amazon or Lyft or, or any similar company. And a lot of people are coming from an industry. You know, just what you said, coming from the real estate, we're all trying to disrupt it with software, uh, coming from with specific uh, market knowledge uh, and then learning really how to build product, how to build startups, how to build software. And we all kind of think that the, the values that drive us, the strategies that we, we, we use, that they come from the startup world, from these maybe even big companies. But would you say that having worked at these, you know, Silicon Valley unicorns, has taught you slightly different values? Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the proudest things I have done in the last year and a half was that I make good trade-offs between short-term goals and long-term stability. And because in Silicon Valley, there will be certain bugs and user pain points that will be, become an all-consuming matter in the companies I worked at. There will be a SEF in for people who don't know what that means is it's an incident uh, where customers are pairing degraded service and one or two engineers will stop everything they do and to go fix it. Okay, so that's a very real thing. It is surprising to me that when I was entering this software industry for real estate, that other companies just let these what I consider SEFs go on for weeks without fixing. I don't know if that's just lack of priority, lack of engineering scalability, or just lack of that they have better, uh, bigger fish to fry. I don't know, but to me, they are pretty important bugs. So I'll give you maybe for those who are technical, maybe make it a little bit more concrete. Uh, so a specific example is in January of 2021, about nine months after we started a company, when someone make an investment, they are directly attached to a real estate deal. Uh, when they should be attached, they should invest not as a person, they should be invest through a type of abstraction called investment profile, right? And the profile should be attached to the classes of the deal, right? Now, suppose I went down the path of never creating these abstractions called investment profiles and classes of an entity. It will be really difficult to add the classes back in uh, later. And I know this because there are established software companies that still don't have classes. And I know how difficult it will be for them to add classes. They have to backfill the entire you know, database or whatnot. And we just we spend you know, an extra month actually to just refactor that whole thing in preparation that I know in the future we needed it. To this day, I was so grateful that I did that. Otherwise, we will just be in a constant pain uh, right now trying to refactor. And it's it's actually something that I see a lot with, with startups that you know build a prototype and then 
catch the catch the hockey stick train and all they're doing is is firefighting literally right firefighting and uh trying to improve scalability but i think this is one of the toughest trade-offs you can you can possibly have in a software company is you know because in the end while you're prototyping a lot of times you just don't have the resources to build quote-unquote properly you have to take the gamble and and understand if if this even catches on and if it doesn't then okay i'm just gonna scrap it nothing nothing bad happened but if it does then obviously i wish i had invested more earlier so this is uh yeah i i'm very fascinated by how you really did a fairly bold move and how how well it it, it worked out so congratulations again culturally what what did you take from having worked at, at Amazon, etc. Culturally, one thing is the technical bar. We hire a ton of engineers over the last few months, and I just we have a very high technical bar. In fact, it was so high that almost almost 100% of the interns that intern with us went on to go to uh, Amazon and other like high-tech companies. I used to joke that we're like, basically a factory to produce Amazon software engineers, which means that at some point they were, they were good enough to get into Amazon, right? So because of the training in our company. So the technical bar is definitely one. Second is just this ability to hire good people, gain their respect, and give them the freedom to innovate. Uh, that's super important. I don't believe in processes as much as I believe that hire just good, talented people. And I go out of my way to hire talented engineers. A lot of the other companies, they tend to hire people with certain Python, Flask, React skill sets. Our interview process is just, can you solve this coding problem? Because I believe if you can solve it using any language, you should be able to do a good job. The second one is communication. Smart people may not be the best collaborators. But we want people who take, uh, who are smart and can collaborate and are empathetic and kind towards others. And then lastly, uh, this ownership, end-to-end ownership. It's not okay to say, oh, I'm working on this project and the front-end engineer kind of screwed up the HTML and that's why it doesn't work. It's your project. It's your responsibility to fix it end-to-end. If you don't know front-end, figure out a way to get it fixed. So... These are the things because I went to these companies per se, they're just part of my reality. It's not like I'm trying to reinvent the wheels. And finally, Amazon taught me the concept of customer obsession. The most important thing is the customer's pain points. And the good thing about customers is that they get comfortable with a cool thing very quickly. They're never satisfied. When you first release a feature, they're like, oh, that's so cool. You're the best. And then five days later, it's like, this doesn't work. I'm like, yeah, that was not launched five days ago. <laughs> so and that's a good thing because we're always constantly innovating. And so I always tell my friends and uh, teams is that I care about customers, my team, and investors in that order. Customers always number one. And then team is number two. And then uh, the, uh, the investors. And I tell my investors that too. It's good to have a priority of what you what you care about. And do you also think that having worked at those companies, that the ecosystem within helped you 
with other things in in life. So the connection that you've made, the peers you've had, even two, three companies back. Yeah, absolutely. One is the lessons you learn, and second is the quality of network that you have. Uh, they have helped me in both my syndication, real estate syndication, as well as uh, funding for the startup. There are you know directors, senior directors, senior engineer managers, principal engineers of from these companies that invested in my in in, the, in our company. Uh, so uh, I'm forever grateful for the trust, almost the blind trust in me. And you don't really prove to them unless you work like for many years with them. And when they refer me to VCs and other angels, the connection just instantly click. So the relationships and the people are just probably the best part of working at top companies. Well, thank you so much. This has been super, super, super insightful. And congratulations on on this rockstar ride with with Cashflow Portal. And uh, well, good luck ahead. What's your What's your next milestone now? What What is your plan with the with with that money? The plan is to keep hiring more engineers. Uh, we probably will double our engineering team. We will do more marketing, strategic marketing and partnerships. And finally, we will double down on differentiators from our competitors and really innovate on behalf of the uh, our customers. I think the whole industry is still in its beginning, its first or second inning. So I think there's a lot of stuff that we want to build and we will build them. The company grows up to be very much like their founder. Uh, I have learned that. And I think this company is going to be very focused on product innovation, good engineering, high availability, stability, and not so much um, like cold sales outbound outreach, uh, for example. Well, we will do them, but we will not do as much of it. And the way we get customers right now is just do word of mouth. And they just say, wow, they offer amazing customer support and the product just works. And the next milestone, we are still early. So the milestone is to achieve a seven-figure uh, ARR. Awesome. Well, good luck. So where, where can we learn more about you and Cashflow Portal? Simply go to cashflowportal.com. You can email me at perry at cashflowportal.com. You can also join our private Facebook group. It's called Techies in real estate there you can find about a lot about prop tech as well as how to maybe get started in real estate investing awesome thank you so much it's been a pleasure thank you thank you victor this show is brought to you by trust your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from eastern europe we recruit full-time developers match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way, so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.